Well, this afternoon, uh, if we have a quorum anyway, we're going to hear reports and plans for the work of the church in the coming year. And there's going to be some details and specifics, and a lot of it I think is going to seem pretty mundane, you know, just things that have to be done, budgets and curricula and things like that. This morning, you know, as we prepare for that, I want to ask you an overarching question, set the context. And that is, why is the church here? Why is the church here? Is it to tell people about Jesus? Is it to baptize and teach and make disciples? Is it to worship? Is it to feed the hungry and clothe the poor? Is it to change laws and provide a voting block for a particular political party? I mean, why are we here? What's the purpose of our being here? The answer that we give to that question is important because unless we grasp why we're here, we'll carry out our ministry individually and collectively as on a treadmill, seemingly spinning our wheels at best, really spinning our wheels at worst. Let me start today with the obvious. Why we're here has something to do with Jesus coming. It has something to do with the Son of God coming into the world. And Jesus told us that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so to understand why we're here, why he came, assumes that we have some familiarity with the law and the prophets. Now, the the culmination of why Jesus came comes to fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. But what we're here for right now, how we live, what we do as we wait for that day is the critical issue. And I can think of no passage that sums up the answer to that more powerfully than the 66th chapter of the book of Isaiah. I want to read to you this morning, verses 19 through 22. This is God's word. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. They will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain. In Jerusalem is an offering to the Lord on horses, chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites, bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord and ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests, And Levites, says the Lord, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure. Father, we pray today that as you have appointed us and called us to proclaim your glory, Father, we cannot 
proclaim what we have not seen. Open our eyes to see it. Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Did you hear what Isaiah said? The reason the church is here is to behold God's glory, to be transformed by that glory, and to help other individuals see that glory and be transformed by it. You know, as we look at what is said here, suppose we really need to answer the question, what is glory? What is glory? In Greco-Roman culture, the idea of glory was uh, fame, acclaim, uh, accolade. You wanted to be known. Well, the Bible has some of that in the idea of glory, but if that's all there is to glory, well, it doesn't mean much. You know, I think we can all think of people today uh, who are famous, who have acclaim, who are well-known, but there's no substance. The Bible calls such glory, if that's all it is, vain glory. Glory in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, has a much more significant meaning. God says here of the people that he's gathering, the survivors, those, if you will, who are saved, that they will proclaim my glory among the nations. The Hebrew word here for glory and the word that we find throughout the Old Testament is the word kavod. And that word kavod means weight. It means what is heavy, what is substantial what has mass, if you will. Our confession of faith says that God has all life and glory in himself. And by comparison, creation has none. It's not glory. In the beginning... When there was nothing else, God, who always was, made the heavens and the earth. And and you can't read through the first chapter of Genesis uh, in light of the prophets and not draw the conclusion that compared to God, everything else is ephemeral, is impermanent, is fleeting, is, as James says, smoke and vapor. And to understand why we're here, you have to understand why Jesus came. To understand why Jesus came, you have to understand something about how things were supposed to be. This creation from the get-go was ephemeral. Temporary, fleeting, the first stage of the rocket, if you will. Historical theologian uh, David Van Drunen has done an excellent summary of the history of theology from the early church fathers through Calvin, through Charles Hodge, through Louis uh, Burkhoff and Herman Bavink and others. And rather than try to characterize it, let me read to you some of it. He says, bearing the image and likeness of God is the thing that sets apart human beings from the rest of creation. 
Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 show us that the Christian's renewal in the image of God through faith in Christ indicates that the image of God in Christ is not something entirely new, but reflects the image as originally created by God. Bearing God's image is about who we are, but also about what we do. God made Adam to be a wise, holy, and righteous king. He was to pick up where God had left off. God named many created things, and then he rested. And he commanded Adam to name many things that he had not named. God made Adam with a host of latent abilities that he was to develop and put to use in benevolent rule over all other things. The first Adam was made in God's image and likeness and was commissioned to work as God had worked. He was also to rest as God had rested. The image of God was not only about working and working and working and working, but also about finishing the work and resting like God himself rested. The first Adam did not bear God's image in order to work aimlessly in the original creation, but to finish his work in this world, and then to enter a new creation and sit down enthroned in royal rest. Psalm 8 is about the original creation. And from the book of Hebrews, we learn of that psalm that from the beginning, even before the fall into sin, God destined human beings to be rulers over all things ultimately in a world to come. The tree of life of Genesis chapter 2 was not the symbol of a continued life upon this earth, but of life in a new heavens and a new earth, as we see in Revelation chapter 22. Being made in the image of God meant that Adam was to finish the task that was given to him in joyful, willing, loving obedience, and completing his work to be made into the fullness of the image of God and to enter the fullness of the glory of the image of God. But Adam's life was, in the words of the old theologians, a missable, that is, he was capable of dying. He could lose his life. He was capable of sinning. He could lose his holiness. Adam, like the rest of creation, had no kavod, no glory, no substance. He was to attain glory, that is life and immortality and lastingness, through his obedience. And when he failed, he locked us into an inglorious, Existence, an existence of withering grass and fading flowers and smoke and vapor that appears for a while and vanishes. And the whole situation has been aggravated and exacerbated by the taint and corruption of sin. And so we, uh, as a race now in our natural selves, are blind to the glory of God but we were created to be worshipers. We must worship. It is in our DNA. We can't do anything but worship. 
People may argue that they don't worship. But press them. Find out what's ultimate in their life. Find out what, if it was taken away from them, would end them, and you'll find out what it is that they worship. We must worship. We were created to be worshipped. Alienated from God, unable to see his glory, we put the weight of glory upon things that cannot bear that weight. We worship created things rather than the creator. What Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. You must understand that God alone is glorious. He alone has all life and glory in and unto himself. He doesn't derive any of his glory from you or from me. He doesn't need your worship or mine. He stands in no need of any of his creatures, nor does he derive any glory from them. But you, created in the image of God, were originally destined for glory. And that's why Christ came. Paul says that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those uh, he uh, predestined, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Christ came into the world to bestow upon us the glory that is the substance, the permanence, the weightiness that Adam never attained. That's a glory that doesn't come from us. So Christ's kingdom, which is a glorious kingdom, is a kingdom that is not of this world. It doesn't have its origin here. It doesn't have its point of reference here. Because it's not of this world, it is in the words of Hebrews 12.28, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And the church is called to the work of that kingdom. The reason the church is here is to behold God's glory, to be transformed by that glory, and to help other individuals see God's glory and be transformed by it. So what exactly is the work of the kingdom? This is where the church in our age has gotten so badly off track. It's not the first time in history that it has, uh, nor is it likely to be the last. The last time this happened was at the turn of the last century with the advent of the social gospel. The social gospel maintained that kingdom work was defined as doing good things in the world. As long as you were doing good in the world and you were a Christian person or claimed to be, you were doing the work of the kingdom. So you look at what happened at the turn of the century with the social gospel. Kingdom work was being socially activistic, politically engaged, uh, exerting influence and changing laws. That's the work of the kingdom. Like communism, the social gospel fails every time it is tried but we keep trying it, and for the same reason, because we say, but they didn't get it. 
we do. We're better people, or we understand the agenda better. The social gospel fails to recognize that we live in a world that is passing away. A world which the New Testament likens to Babylon. Babylon is the stage on which the drama of redemption is played out, but Babylon herself cannot be saved. Read the last chapter of the book. Babylon herself cannot be saved. Every earthly good accomplished for and in it will fade and crumble and pass away because the world is passing. What does that mean? Does that mean Christians should withdraw from the world? Not only is the answer to that no, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to withdraw from the world. But if the New Testament tells us that the age in which we live, the context in which we live, the nations in which we live, are Babylon. Well, then what did God say to the people in Babylon? Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you also will prosper. There's a common grace, good, and you should seek to do it, and I should seek to do it here. But don't confuse it with the work of the kingdom. Christian doctors should seek to treat patients and cure diseases. But is that the work of the kingdom? What benefit would it ultimately bring for someone's life to be preserved by a day or a week or a month or a year or a couple of decades if they lose their soul? Christian legislators should seek to pass just laws, though every one of them in this world will have evil unintended consequences. And so they should carry out their work knowing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that when Christ comes, it will be to destroy all dominion, authority, and power. Those words are words for human government in the New Testament. That Christ isn't coming to incorporate, to co-opt, to convert, to use all authority and dominion and power, but to destroy it all, it will pass away. What is the work of the kingdom? The work of the kingdom is the work that no one can do except those who have seen God's glory. And what is that work? Well, Isaiah sums it up here. 
I will set a sign among them. I'll send those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, to Tubal, Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they will proclaim my glory among the nations. John wrote in his gospel, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John spends the rest of his gospel showing us his glory. By all means, by all means, serve God by serving Babylon. Be a butcher, be a baker, be a candlestick maker, be a doctor, an engineer, a construction worker, by all means. These are all things that people who do not know God's glory can do. They're things that people who do not know God's glory can do well. And they're things that people who do not know God's glory can do well and can do for good. The church is called to do the work of the kingdom. To behold God's glory, to be transformed by that glory, fit for a coming age, and to show others that glory so that they may be transformed by it and fit for a coming age. By all means, serve in Babylon. Serve the Lord through serving Babylon. But always remember, dear brother or sister in Christ, that you do so as Daniel in Babylon or Joseph in Egypt and by no means become one of the Babylonian soothsayers. Use the kingdom with the world. Babylon is the stage on which the drama of redemption is played out. You're doing the work of the kingdom when you use the opportunities that God gives you to show others the glory of God in Christ, to invite them to a kingdom that cannot be shaken and in an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Idolatry is worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. And it is frighteningly easy to do. Maybe you've heard this sentiment expressed, I have. This country wants to prosper and succeed. It had better turn to the Lord. Have you ever heard that? I hope you can recognize the idolatry in it. The real goal there is a country that's prosperous and successful, and God is but a means to getting there. Contrast the idolatry of God as a means to an end of prosperity and success to the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, who refused to worship any other than the living God. When Nebuchadnezzar had a statue erected and order that people worship it, and when they refused to do it, said that if they did not, that the law required that they be cast into a furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar asked, and what God can deliver you then? Do you remember their answer? They said, our God can deliver us. But even if he does not, know that we will never worship any other. They saw God's glory. God's glory was 
no means to something else, to saving their life or giving them a better life or making them successful. But God's glory was an end in itself. To sum it up in the words of martyred missionary Jim Elliott, that man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Babylon, this first creation, now fallen into sin, is the stage on which the drama of redemption takes place. You know, we used to have an, an elder years ago at Bethel Church who worked for ABC News. And he told me one time that sometimes when they did a story uh, off location outside the studio, they would, they would build sets. And he said they would, they would bring in materials, things that we would think of very costly materials, granite and things like that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of materials. Some of these sets cost more than your house costs. And he said that they would, that they'd, that they'd build these sets. They were purpose-built, temporarily built, and run the story. It would take four hours or eight hours or 24 hours or 48 hours, and then it would all be dismantled and thrown into the dumpster. And I, and I remember gasping when he told me that. And he said, no, he, goes, he said, you don't get it. He said, that stuff won't fit anywhere else. It can't be kept. It can't be saved. Your problem is you're focusing on the material thing. You see, we're not focused on it. We're focused on the story. But let me return to the question. Why are we here? Because if we don't know, or we're unclear, or we're misled by the common thinking that we find in the evangelical world today, we'll feel like we're spinning our wheels at best, or Maybe actually spinning our wheels at worst. When my kids were little, our family used to take a vacation to Lake Anna. And of course, as we would drive along, there'd be chatter early on. But the further on you drove, you know, the more the chatter would die down. Maybe people would fall asleep. Not very far from the house where we stayed, we'd reach a fork in the road. And shortly after we took that fork on the left, there was an ancient church, an ancient own church. Now I say ancient, it was probably 150 years old. My friends from Europe laugh when I call anything here ancient. I doubt that that church, uh, being where it was situated in farmland, it's still a lot of farmland around there. Being situated in farmland 150 years ago, you know, there's a, not a very dense population, far away to travel. I doubt that that church ever was bigger than about 50 people. But it was a generationally thriving church. You could, you could tell that because there was a sizable graveyard around the church. And I'd drive by there. Usually my family's worn out and tired at that time. And I'd drive by and I'd look at that church. Generations of people had worshipped there, had laid to rest there. And as I'd drive by, my, my heart would, would tug a little bit. It would drop because I'd drive by. And the, the graveyard now was all overgrown with tall grass and weeds. And the windows and doors were all boarded up. And there were holes in the roof where it had rotted away and there were trees growing out of the building. It 
people who laid their loved ones to rest there ever think that that would happen? Or did they think that there would be a church worshiping there when the Lord returns and they would see the dead in Christ rise first and they themselves together would be caught up with in the air to meet the Lord and thus they'd always be with the Lord? I drive by the derelict of that church, and I imagine it in its time. The weekly worship, the fellowship dinner, the wedding, the baptisms, the anniversary, funeral. Does any of it count for anything? It may not have. To what? told at the beginning of the 66th chapter of the book of Isaiah. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. Whoever offers a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns incense like one who worships an idol. They've chosen their own way. Their souls delight in their abomination. And, And it's a constant theme throughout the book of Isaiah. That the people, you read the book, people worship carefully. Worship God carefully. But their lives are focused on things here, now. And they didn't see God. And you know what the sad thing is? Let me read down in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. It can happen that in the church there are those whose minds are set on earthly things. And they think they're right. They think they've got it right. And they cast out those whose eyes are really open to the glory of God because they're out of step with what makes sense in this age. So let me tell you. But if your eyes open to the kingdom of God, you will not fit comfortably here anywhere. Paul says to the church at Colossae, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Please hear those words. He doesn't say set your mind on things above. Don't set them on sinful things, on evil things. He says don't set them on earthly. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now look around today, and I ask, how many churches today have their minds set on earthly things and boast that they're doing the work of the Lord? I don't know that church in Lake Ann. I don't know what its history was before Lake. But if its focus was on its work days, on fixing the roof, on the 
their fellowship dinners, even on careful worship we read about in Isaiah. If that's what they put the weight of glory on, well, it's all crumbled away to nothing. But if that church was a church that understood that all of the worship, the potluck dinners, the work days, the weddings, the funerals, the worship, all of them see the glory of God, be transformed by that glory, fit for a coming age, and to direct other people to the glory of God, to be transformed by it. Well, the set on which that took place may have been dismantled and thrown into the dumpster. But what was accomplished in those stories will be glorious, substantial, solid, forever. The reason the church is here is to behold God's glory, to be transformed by that glory and fit for the coming age and to help other individuals see that glory that they can be transformed by it and fit for the coming age. But let me ask you, why are you here? Why are you here? Is it just to do churchy things? Is it to have fellowship dinners or do some volunteer work or fulfill some sense of obligation to worship? If our focus is on things, inside or outside the church that have no glory, no weight or substance, it will just crumble to nothing. Are you putting the weight of glory upon those things? Worshipping and serving created things rather than the creator? Because if you are, if that's where your life is, you are not safe. You will watch your life crumble away as those things crumble away. Are your eyes open to the glory of God? Do you hear his call to declare the glory to the nation? Such that you serve in the nursery, not just because somebody has to watch the kids, but so that parents of little ones can come to worship and see the glory of God and be transformed by it and then be used by God so that those little ones can see the glory of God in their life. serve on the sound system ministry just because you like tech or it's a volunteer opportunity? Or is it so that people who are too ill to come? And in fact, people around the world, we know that from the IP addresses that come, that, 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 that many people in lands where the gospel is not allowed to be preached tune into our services and messages. And do you participate in that because you've seen God's glory and you want others to see God's glory? It's not through the bellicose, loudmouths, shouting political slogans in the name of the Lord whose minds are set upon earthly things that the work of the kingdom is done. But this is the one to whom I will look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The work of the kingdom is being done by you, 
if your mind is fed on things above rather than things of the earth? You've seen the glory of God and you answer that call to make his glory known to others. Whatever humble service you render in the church or in the world to make the gospel known, if your focus and goal is that you are doing the work of the kingdom. John Newton said it this way, fading is the worldling's pleasure. All their boasted pomp and show, solid joy, lasting treasure, none but Zion's children. The reason the church is here is to behold God's glory and to be transformed by that glory to be fit for a coming age. And to help other individuals see that glory so that they may be. Father, today may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer.